What a week it's been in the sport we call real estate in Vancouver. The report of the Independent Advisory Group was released this week, and uh, following that, not shortly after uh, the government's response. We're going to break that down for you. And, John, uh, what are the stories that we're also talking about on Vancouver Real Estate Today? It's been an incredibly busy week, Ian, as far as real estate news is concerned. Almost a head-spinning week. We'll begin with the 28 recommendations that came out from that independent advisory uh, group that was part of uh, Christy Clark's announcement when the Real Estate Council of BC launched this group back in February. It came amid allegations that some agents were deceiving clients in Metro Vancouver's very hot housing market. The advisory group says sweeping changes are needed to restore consumer confidence. So the council's executive officer, Robert Fawcett, says the regulator welcomes 28 recommendations included in their final report. Fawcett says the regulator's priority moving forward is to create a plan for implementing those recommendations. BC's superintendent of real estate says the province's hot housing market is posing challenges for the body that oversees the industry. Carolyn Rogers says any time there is an extreme price fluctuation, people will rush into the market to make a quick buck, creating situations the Real Estate Council of BC was not designed to handle. Now, time to clean up what some are now viewing as a shady industry in her most decisive move yet. After that announcement of the 28 recommendations, Premier Christy Clark talked about the hot housing market and the affordability crisis. She announced the industry will no longer be self-regulated and penalties will climb significantly for those who break the rules. To about a quarter of a million dollars for individuals and a half a million dollars as a maximum for brokerages. We're going to um, uh, take the advice that said we should allow the superintendent to take away commissions from those who break the rules. Clark says a new superintendent will perform all of the regulatory roles currently done by the Real Estate Council. This follows the report of the 28 recommendations the day prior. Thomas Davidoff at UBC says this does nothing to tackle Metro Vancouver's affordability housing crisis. No. The ability of people to feel like they can trust their realtor is, of course, critical uh, to the comfort in buying a home. But, you know, if people feel more comfortable about buying a home today than they did a week ago, if anything, that makes homes more expensive in terms of dollars and cents. One realtor we spoke with says he's not surprised by the move. We are in election year, and I can appreciate the government's uh, need to be seen as taking decisive action on the issue of uh, the real estate industry. So I don't think anyone in our business would be surprised. The president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver spoke with us as well and is taking a positive approach to the announcement by Clark. Dan Morrison says the next steps are to wait and to see. We really don't know what that's going to look like yet. So until we get more details, and we will again be happy to work with the new superintendent of real estate to how we implement them the same way we work with the Real Estate Council on trying to make things better for both the consumer and for realtors. So could tougher regulations in BC's real estate industry actually have an impact on Metro Vancouver's hot housing market? Could prices go up because of this? Realtor Mike Stewart says adopting these new rules could mean more time, and more time means more money. Every time you have more regulation, you have more costs because it takes time to obey all the new rules, understand the new rules, and then it takes time to obey them. Potentially could increase the cost of real estate. While he supports most of the rules, he says stopping the practice of double ending could drive up housing prices. It's extra regulation that requires people to get representation, but when you've got a savvy, sophisticated buyer who doesn't 
need representation and they're able to negotiate something with the people they're purchasing with, then that might increase real estate prices. A Richmond man who says he fell victim to shady real estate practices is applauding proposed changes to tighten up regulation in the industry. As long as they stick to their guns and make sure that there's no loopholes in there, like they make sure they cross all their T's and dot all the I's, I think it's a really good idea. Jim Davis says he lost out to shadow flipping. He filed a lawsuit back in May against the agent, his brokerage firm, and the buyer, which claims he's a victim of shadow flipping. Asked why foreign cash issues did not make the list, BC's Finance Minister Mike DeYoung says the province's response to the housing issue is focused first and foremost on the supply side of the equation. I will tell you candidly that ultimately our response to the housing and affordability challenges has centered around what are the things that we can do uh, not to depress or eliminate demand. DeYoung says that the province has already taken steps to address issues of speculation and offshore money by raising the property transfer tax on luxury homes. In response to those comments and other comments saying that they welcome foreign capital in the province, the NDP's housing critic is firing back. I'm surprised to hear that the mayor and the finance minister agree that uh, that this is a good thing. Uh, international money is coming into our housing market. David Eby calls it willful ignorance to suggest that this is an immigration issue. This isn't about people coming to live and work in Metro Vancouver. This is about international capital coming into our housing market, uh, making it completely unaffordable for people to live here. EB says increasing supply will not solve housing affordability in Metro Vancouver. In a city that already has record housing starts, the only issue is that we need to build more. It's a huge mistake. It's, it's fighting the challenge of affordability with one hand tied behind your back. Evie says the real estate issue is foreign capital coming in from people who don't live and work in the region and don't pay taxes. Academics are joining the course of calls asking why issues of speculation and foreign investment were left out of the comments by Premier Christy Clark. Josh Gordon is with the School of Public Policy at Simon Fraser University. It's actually stunning that they are still at this point not recognizing the influence of foreign capital. Uh, the, the consensus at a national level is clearly moving in that direction. You now have the big banks essentially saying this. BC Real Estate Association Chief Economist Cameron Muir has argued that price increases are chiefly driven by the BC economy. UBC's Thomas Davidoff says that's not true. He points out that Vancouver is pushing double the ratios of price to rent. And that says it cannot be local taxpayers driving things. The valuations uh, are coming from people from overseas who like our low property taxes and no questions asked approach to uh, income taxation. The city of Vancouver is getting the ball rolling on an empty homes tax. Councillors voted this week for the city to develop its own tax if there's no deal with the province by August 1st. But Councillor Andrea Reimer says they much prefer if Victoria runs the program. The city and province are currently in talks over the tax. In March, a report came out finding 10,000 empty homes in the city, a city which is struggling with a 0.6% rental vacancy rate. In East Vancouver. A lot of people are concerned about just basic livability. They're feeling like, hey, I'm going to live in a construction zone for the next decade to two decades. The city of Vancouver voted on a contentious project near Joyce Skytrain Station that would see several towers go up. Ariel Yip with the Joyce Area Residents Association says the vision team missed the mark with public consultations on the project kind of a sense of hopelessness. I've tirelessly worked with my community for over six months trying to improve city planning in such a vulnerable neighborhood that has higher population of low-income and immigrants. Among residents being displaced, there are more concerns. 
I think it's going to increase unaffordability in our neighborhood. I think it's going to cause congestion. Yip says the only win in the uh, situation is the amendment for the community amenity contributions to go up. The public is getting its first-hand look at a revised plan for the Grandview Woodland community. In the past, buildings as high as 36 stories were proposed, drawing significant opposition from the community. The new plan calls to keep existing mixed-use housing in areas along Commercial Drive, Hastings and Nanaimo while protecting rental stock in key residential areas. But Jack King, former president of the Grandview Woodlands Area Council, says he has mixed feelings about the new plan, especially around new towers proposed between 12 and 24 stories. King does applaud, though, the city for adding new rental stock. Public consultations on the draft plan were underway this week. Surrey parents are claiming victory after Surrey City Council voted to put a South Newton development on hold. Cindy Daglish, a member of the South Newton Community Group, says almost 300 new homes near Highway 10 and 152nd Street in an already jam-packed neighbourhood would have put undue pressure on local schools. Surrey City Councillor Judy Villeneuve says the project is going back now to city staff. She says the neighbourhood will see more densification, but not without needed infrastructure. BC is getting its first taste of the $2.3 billion the federal government pledged to affordable housing in their budget of 2016. Federal Social Development Minister Jean-Yves Duclos announced this week $150 million for BC over the next two years. The cash comes on top of an existing $63 million in joint funding from B.C. and Ottawa. Meantime, Duclos says the gears are already in motion for a long-sought-after national housing strategy. Details of those consultations will be announced soon with the national strategy to be hammered out by the end of the fall. Canada is currently the only G8 country without such a plan. Protesters gathered outside a meeting of the federal provincial housing ministers and calling for more social housing to be built across the country. Canada's housing minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, stopped by the rally and was greeted with jeers. Ivan Jury of the Alliance Against Development told the minister that the protesters want more than political rhetoric. Jury says homelessness is at record levels across Canada and the protesters are calling on the federal government to build 77,000 units of social housing every year. And lastly, Ian Vancouver is the costliest city in Canada, but attractive to expats from companies around the world, according to the latest Mercer's Cost of Living survey. Spokesperson Gordon Frost says a low Canadian dollar also means a greater challenge for Canadian companies placing their employees in cities abroad. Frost says Canadian cities dropped significantly in this year's ranking due to the weak Canadian dollar. Vancouver's ranked 142nd of the most costliest cities in the world. Toronto was 143rd. Montreal at 155th. Now those are just some of the stories that made real estate news this week. John, thanks for that. Uh, pretty comprehensive look in 10 minutes at what has been one of the busier weeks in real estate. And that's saying a lot considering what this market has been through in the last little while. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to a managing broker who may just say, and I'm not sure about this, but I have a feeling he's going to say, I told you so. That's next on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. British Columbia is ending the self-regulation of the real estate industry. Premier Clark said on Wednesday that the province will hire a new superintendent of real estate. You heard that in the news. Uh, They will take over the rulemaking authority held by the B.C. Real Estate Council. Uh, The group also suggested that prohibiting a single agent from representing both buyers and sellers in a single transaction... Uh, having the profits received from misconduct returned to the client and creating a confidential whistleblower hotline. 
Uh, the government release uh, said that the province accepts the recommendations and will implement new penalties. Joining us by phone in Vancouver is Ian Bailey, founding a founder and managing broker at 1% Realty. And uh, when I read this report, it made me think that a, a lot of these findings were the kind of things that a few people had said, and I think that you might say, I kind of told you so, or that you might have suspected something like this was coming along. Yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think the public, it, it, real estate's in the paper a lot, and the news and everything else these days, and it's just under a lot of scrutiny. And uh, I think some of the things that went on perhaps weren't, uh, you know, they weren't penalized enough if, if they were true or it didn't happen quick enough, I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, you know, the media wants to hear, people want to hear that something's going on and just have more trust in the industry. So interesting, large, it's probably good. Interesting comment that you make that people want the sense. So a lot of this is perception. And my perception is, quite frankly, that the, 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 the provincial government had no choice. They had to do something, uh, whether they had to go as far as disbanding uh, the council is that's probably up for debate, but I'm wondering if this isn't just a big smoke screen uh, of getting the news to shift gears away from the affordability or the the supply issue. Well, it's true. This has nothing to do with affordability or anything else. My guess is the real estate council, like I'm going to say, 99.9 percent of the industry is is afraid of them, right? I mean, they they. They can make your life hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that the government's doing it, maybe they'll ca- hopefully they catch a couple of guys if these fraudulent doings have been going on. Uh, you know, throw them out, get rid of their license, and find them. But uh, for the most part, council complaints and stuff are, are the guy made a mistake. He forgot to write something into a contract that he should have, and he's not trying to defraud anybody or anything like that. But uh, I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a bunch of bluster, and it, it sounds good with an election coming up. Well, that's just it. And, and isn't that the point, that there is an election coming up, that they want to be seen to be doing something? Uh, in the meantime, they're collecting huge amounts of money and revenue is uh, pouring in from what has to be one of the growth industries in this province. So it, it kind of begs the question, as you said, the Real Estate Council was feared by most realtors. You and I will both agree that most realtors, uh, they go to work in the morning and they do a pretty good job and they're pretty honest and they, they represent really well. So why disband an organization that oversees it because of a few bad apples? I mean, we don't have numbers, but I suspect that there aren't as many people taking advantage of these, you know, doing things a little bit fishy uh, as, the, you know, maybe the public perceives. No, I think you're absolutely right. The realtors are getting blamed for a lot these days, and, you know, perhaps some with some merit sometimes. But for the most part, as you say, guys are out doing their job. They're not trying to defraud people. They're trying to earn a living and feed their families. And, uh, uh, you know, there's not that I'm aware of all that much fraud or dirty dealings going on. And the ones that do go on, they should, yeah, they should be drawn and quartered. Absolutely. So do you think that this is uh, something that you have seen coming for a while? Your model at 1% Realty, uh, we would call you a discount broker. Uh, is it a question that uh, we've got uh, commissions and fees that are, you know, just over the top with given the, the prices of housing in this market that realtors are, are there's a lot of money at stake. And, and when there is that kind of money at stake, people will tend to go to the dark side. Yes, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, yeah, as you say, these are huge numbers floating around in, in every which way, right? The sellers, the buyers, and, and the realtors. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's, it's, it's phenomenal, the money floating around. 
What do you think about this idea of uh, separating uh, buyers and sellers? Well, that's, yes, that's been, there's other states and provinces, I, I don't know about provinces, but there's places in the U.S. that have done this, and it is a fundamental conflict of interest. It's about as big a conflict as you can have trying to legitimately work for both sides of an agreement. One guy wants the place as cheap as he can, and the other guy wants to get as much as he can, and you're relying on one person. Uh, there's good there's good logic to it. The reality is the realtor's out there working, trying to make a deal. I remember a client once told me, he said, you don't work for the buyer or work for the seller. He said, you work for this entity called the deal. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows it. And, and the deal only happens if you get agreement. If you were truly working for the seller, you'd be, he'd tell you, I don't, I'll never take anything less than a million. So you tell everybody who wants to pay less than a million, tell them to go away. But that doesn't make a deal, mm-hmm. right? You have to sometimes convince sellers, well, you're not going to get a million, right? Here, we've had five offers. They're all 975. You better give your head a shake. <laughs> and similarly, buyers, right? They say, I wouldn't pay a penny over 950. And if you're only asking, acting for him, then there's never going to be a deal. So there's, there's truth, and that stuck in my head. That's probably 25 years ago the guy said it, and I thought, oh, that's, that's actually very true. It is. And you know what strikes me, though, is that some agents are, without understanding perhaps that concept, might now be reluctant to want to represent a buyer. You mean in addition to a seller? Well, they may only want sellers. They may not even be interested yeah. in, in representing. So in other words, they're not going to... If I come to you and I say, I've got five listings here that I want to have a look at, and I'm only interested in buying, uh, and you've got five or ten listings of your own, you're going to be more interested in selling those five or ten than you are in, in representing me as a buyer for five different listings that you don't hold. Well, there is, that's a different breed of cat. Some realtors like working with buyers. Some like working with sellers. I always preferred working with buyers because it's quantifiable what you're doing and, and what their expectations are, whereas with buyers, you never know. Well, plus a buyer will tell you, don't show me anything that's not a tutor. And then they phone you. You've worked with them for eight months, and they phone you and say, hey, we found our dream house. Say, oh, yeah, what'd you get? Oh, it's a West Coast contemporary. We love it, right? Say, oh, okay. <laughs> you told me never to show you anything but a tutor, but that was cool. <laughs> So I find buyers very fickle, but uh, you know that that's a personal thing of realtors. Yeah, and, and are buyers still fickle now? I mean, it seems that people will are buying and selling just about anything and everything. It doesn't matter whether it's a shack or whether it's a you know it's a mansion. Well, and yeah, I had lunch with a friend of mine on Friday, and he does predominantly work with buyers, and he says he just hates this market because. He says time and again, you, you go through the whole exercise, you find something you like, you write an offer and you coach them and do your best and then you lose in the bidding war. And, and, and you know, they get frustrated with you and they get frustrated with everything and he says you just end up looking like an idiot. Let's take a break and we'll come back for a few more minutes. Okay. We're talking to Ian Bailey. He is the founder and managing broker at 1% Realty. We're reviewing the news of this past week with the uh, the report from the Independent Advisory Group and the, the provincial government's reaction. If you've got something you want to say about this, 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Vancouver Real Estate Today from Newstalk 980 CKNW. Talking to Ian Bailey, founder and managing broker at 1% Realty, which uh, stretches pretty much across this country. Uh, you're in every province now or just about every province? Just about. We're messing around in Quebec, but we're not set up there yet. Okay. Um, I read this Independent Advisory Group report. I know that you did as well. I thought on balance for 15 weeks that they had to work on it. It's a pretty good report. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I would say it is. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Not not too bad. Now, what about this idea? Because the one thing that they missed that I thought would have been included, and I think that you might have some feedback on this, is I, I'm surprised they didn't look at commission fees a little bit more closely. Well, that's not really their mandate. That's driven by the real estate brokerages, so the council or the boards don't have any input. I guess that would border on price price fixing or something if they did. They're more there to keep us, you know, keep us from <laughs> straying off the lines. Sure. Well, fair enough, and, and, I, and, I, and I see what you're saying, and that, that makes perfect sense, but it's something that isn't discussed for some reason, and as long as you've been in business, now you, you were at one time with what we would call the traditional uh, brokerages where you were charging uh, a gazillion dollars, and now you've got your own company that stretches across the country called 1% Realty. Uh, why is it that this industry is so reluctant to talk about it, apart from the obvious fact that they have a lot of money to make. You know what? It's amazing to me. I, I shake my head because, I, you know, we've been almost 20 years at this. And here you come along with, you know, you undercut the market. If, if, if you can buy your butter cheaper at Costco, you go to Costco and buy it. So we do the same thing, you know, same everything, same MLS, same everything, same insurance, same contract, same real estate board for like substantially less money. And we've done fine, but we don't own the market. And it's phenomenal, especially in this, you know, you're, you're selling a house now for two, three, four, five, six million dollars. Commission's going to be 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 dollars. And we all understand we should be done with this by Tuesday, right? We're listing it Thursday. Right. We're going to show it on Sunday. We're looking at offers Tuesday night, so we're talking about five days of work here. And everybody, yeah, okay, sure, it's you know, one hundred and fifty thousand. That sounds cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you'll 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 fly overnight to get to Hawaii and deprive your kids of sleep because you saved thirty nine dollars on the flight or something. Exactly. I, it just it doesn't make sense to me. I guess it uh, it's really simply does come down to dollars and cents, and I, and that's one of the reason why realtors have the reputation they have as being somewhat greedy. And I, and I hate to say that because not all are that way, but certainly there must be a lot that are quite enjoying this market right now. Oh, there's huge, huge money getting made by, you know, many companies and individuals. Like, it's it's staggering, yes. Before I let you go, I want to get to this this idea of this crisis that we're supposedly in, this affordability issue and the supply issue. Now, you've got uh, kids that are in their 20s. Uh, what are you saying to them? They must be concerned about at, at some point wanting to get into the market. <laughs> they want me to start smoking, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Take them out. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's going to be a big, pa- you know, our parents, you know, the baby boomers are inheriting their parents' money right now, and I, I guess it's going to get passed on. But, yeah, you take a kid. Yeah, my kids, your kids are about the same age. They go through university. Let's say they get a good job and they're making $125,000 a year or something, and their wife's making the same they're still not entitled to buy much, are they? No. But do you agree with this idea, and I've floated this before on this show, that perhaps uh, the millennials, uh, if I can term them in that, their expectations are a bit high. They, they won't take that one bedroom or that single suite just to get into the market. They won't uh, put on a slap of paint for uh, you know a year or two just to, to build some equity. No, I think you're absolutely. My daughter fully admits to that. She said, "We're we yeah we we're spoiled. We don't want to do that. We don't want to get our hands dirty. They don't 
uh, I was with a lawyer friend of mine yesterday, and I said, so your kid's going into law? And he says, no, nah, they saw the hours I work, <laughs> and they'd just rather, you know, they'd rather have less. Yeah. They'll, they'll live with a little less money, but they don't want to work 70-hour weeks. Yeah, just don't take away their smartphone. No, no, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> you're still paying for that for your kids. No though, right? doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Ian Bailey, always a pleasure, always fun to talk to you. I appreciate your insight and uh, what you do at 1% Realty. So let's uh, uh, make a point of talking again soon. Okay, thanks very much. Nice talking to you. You bet. Ian Bailey is the founder and managing broker at 1% Realty. Uh, across Canada, and you see his signs all around town as well. Just saw a sold sign with 1% uh, on my block uh, just this past week. We will take a break. We continue to invite you to join us at 604-280-9898 or star 9898. When we come back, we'll talk to a journalist, columnist, and realtor from Toronto. Her name is Romana King, and she has an insight into this market, which may be a little bit different from the outside looking in. That's next on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. Romana King is a senior editor and columnist at Money Sense, a consumer publication that focuses on financial news and investment solutions. She's also a licensed realtor, and we caught up with her today in Toronto. Happy Canada Day weekend to you. Happy Canada Day, Day weekend to you too on the West Coast. Yeah, did you uh, or did you get away to the cottage or what? No, no, our house is kind of like cottage like, so we just stay at home and enjoy the time there. As you know, the, the in, during this past week, uh, the, the sport that we call real estate in Vancouver and in this province, the Independent Advisory Group released a, a final report on the conduct and practices in the BC real estate industry. It wasn't very favorable. Uh, shortly thereafter, the province, uh, with the Premier, Christy Clark, coming down pretty hard on the Real Estate Council by stripping them of self-governance. And you're watching all of this from Toronto, in a market that is arguably equally as hot as that of Vancouver. What's your spin, or uh, poor choice of word perhaps, but your perspective on what you see? Uh, I don't think it's surprising that the Premier's office and, and the Premier, the government of, of BC, has decided to step in. I don't necessarily think it's a wise choice. I think it's more of a political choice. I'm not saying that things don't need to be fixed within self-regulation, but there's a lot of there's been a lot of industries where self-regulation has gone off the rails, and you've had situations that brought it back on track, and they work just fine. I think the problem I have is once you put a layer of government in, it actually becomes really hard to make you know changes. And in the last you know even six months, we've had, we've seen some pretty dramatic and, and effective changes. If you put a layer of government in there, what's going to happen with those? They say it's to, to, to protect the public, but I'd like to see more details of how, how the Premier thinks they're going to do a better job of it. First thing that I thought of is, well, let's strip the dentists of, uh, of their right to, to self-govern because we've had a couple of rogue dentists uh, operating out of their basement. Should we strip the entire industry? Uh, we've had a couple of rogue doctors from time to time that, uh, that you know, I mean, when we're talking about thousands of people in any industry, you're always going to have a, a certain number, whatever that number is, that, you know, kind of, as you say, go off the rails. And I, I mean, I'm thinking in, in Ontario, we have an example where we had a number of doctors, like you said, that sort of went off the rails and, 
And instead of, you know, telling the Ontario Physicians uh, Association, listen, we're going to take all power away from you, what they did is they started to make it become accountable to the public. They set up a, an industry or they set up a website where you could actually check, check a physician, find out if there's any, you know, complaints against this individual, things that made it far more transparent about what they're doing. I think that's what the, regu- uh, the recommendations were from the advisory board, was to start creating, you know, beefier, more stringent rules and regulations and then, and then actually, you know, have better things with teeth, better fines, better better stipulations if you break, you know, ethics. And that's what we want to see. We want to see that and we want to see more transparency. I don't want to see another layer of government. I mean, my worry is if you get another layer of government in there, we're just going to grind to a halt. And I think about, you know, New York and rent control. They can't get rid of rent control now. Yeah. And the people that are benefiting from it are not the people that are struggling money-wise. They're the ones that are actually making quite a lot of money and they still pay, you know, rent control rent. Yeah. I want to get to that in a second. I just wanted to make the comment that my last guest, I don't think that you heard him, but uh, he's a managing broker. Uh, he said that uh, on balance, the Real Estate Council was doing a pretty good job uh, in, in his his estimation. And he said that most realtors in this area actually feared them they, in, in the sense that they wouldn't want to dare do anything to, to, to incur their wrath. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the thing is that Whenever, whenever you're part of an industry and an association, you see the pros and the cons. And I think quite a few realtors, they were upset with some of the rogue realtors that were out there, some of the rogue real estate agents and rogue brokers, and they wanted stiffer penalties. They're now seeing that. But they didn't think that the whole system was, was kaputs. And I've actually talked to quite a few realtors out in BC, real estate agents that have been practicing for 10, 20, 30 years. And one of the things that they helped me understand is you know, self-regulation has only been in, in, power, in place for about 10, 10 years. Put in by this because, government, by the way. Put, put in by this government, exactly. And because it's only been 10 years, it's very fresh. It's very new. They're still getting their feet as to what works and what doesn't. And you've got, I think it's three in North America. It's Houston and Texas. You've got Toronto in, in Canada, and you've got Vancouver. And all three of them are studied around the world as being sort of jewels in the crown. What They do things well. So now you're taking one of those jewels and you're saying, no, 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 we're going to take it back. We're going to do it like the government. Well, the government hasn't, you know, there's lots of things, that ways the government could have stepped in well before the council even stepped in and they didn't. Mm-hmm. So the government itself is looking, I think, they're looking to sort of make a political play. And that's my, my personal per- perspective. But they're, they're definitely making, they want to get out front and center as, as if they're actually doing something about the housing uh, industry and, and the, the problems within it right well, now. Well, I want, to, I want to take a break and I do want to talk about the, the so-called housing crisis, affordability, supply and demand. I want to ask you what your thoughts are on this uh, vacant home tax. But just before we go to the break i just to wrap this segment up because i see this as a bit of a smoke screen and i'm i'm i think i'm hearing the same from you as well is that sort of the, the gist that you're getting from your toronto perspective yeah i, I mean I, I don't know if it's so much as a smoke screen or they just i find that the the provincial government wants to appear being very very proactive about helping you know the, the electorate the voter in vancouver and the voter all over BC. And, and this is a great way to sort of take ownership of, of a problem and look as if you're making a solution. And I don't really see that as this as being a proactive solution. The recommendations made by the, the independent advisory board were excellent. Yes. So why take away the, the, well, now why take away the teeth when you've finally given them teeth? Yeah, it, it's, that's what I'm struggling with. Uh, we're going to try and understand more. Uh, Romana King, can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? Absolutely. Senior editor and columnist at Money Sense, and we'll continue our conversation. When we come back, we're going to look at things like the, the vacant home tax and 
what can be done about this so-called crisis of affordability and supply and demand? And maybe we can get an idea what's happening in Toronto, what they're doing there, or if it's even a big problem with all that all that massive GTA. That's next on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, Romana King is senior editor and columnist at Money Sense, uh, which is a consumer publication focusing on financial news and investment solutions. And I just got so excited to talk to you again because uh, you bring a lot of energy. And, and I like the insight that you have on this because you get a chance and, and you're connected well but you're still far enough on the fence to look in. We're always navel-gazing here, and it's hard to get perspective. What do you think of this idea of a vacant home tax? Well, I think, I mean, I think this is the biggest struggle that Vancouver has. Is they understand now, now there's even individuals and, and uh, professors that used to say, no, you know, foreign buyers are not a problem within the Vancouver market. Now they're doing an about face and saying, okay, you know what? We do have evidence. Foreign money, foreign buyers possibly because of that vacant homes, this is an issue, it's driving up prices. And so you have to grapple with, well, how do we actually do this? How do we actually deter people coming in and buying homes and driving up the prices um, if they're just going to leave those homes sitting vacant? And I, I think that's the biggest dilemma and the biggest outcry is if I want to buy something and I'm, I'm a domestic, I'm, I live in Vancouver and I want to buy something, I want to live in it. I want to actually develop my community. But if you buy it and you leave the home vacant and there's big streets where they're vacant, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the thing that I, I, I just wanted to, to say this, that I have some trouble with this vacant home tax. I, I mean, it's it, it's a very, very small piece of a large puzzle, and I don't know that it's going to make a lot of difference. I'm just not sure. I haven't seen the argument that says that we will help the affordability crisis or put more people in homes because we'll fill up or tax these empty homes. I'm thinking if I'm a foreign investor or any kind of a speculator and I've got a so-called empty home, what do I care if I pay a little more tax? I'm, I'm really more interested in protecting my money. I'll keep the home empty. I'll pay a little bit more tax. It's really not going to put really that much more stock on the market. It's funny that you mention that. That's actually an argument I, I put forward with Brexit and, and foreign money coming to Canada. I don't think the foreign money cares whether it's in Vancouver or St. John's, Newfoundland. They Bingo. just want a place to park it. Yeah. So having these taxes, whether it's a foreign uh, foreign buyer's tax or luxury tax, so you have a certain cap point and anything above that, you're going to tax it even more. Or you know, where do you draw the line with foreign money? Is it someone from Toronto buying into Vancouver, that's foreign money? Or is it anyone overseas without a Canadian passport? Is that foreign money? You know, what? how are we going to actually move the money around? And I think the problem that the federal government, the provincial government and municipal governments are all tackling is, how do we actually attract this money without hurting our current population? Right. The federal government doesn't want to deter, you know, foreign investors from coming in and pumping money into the Canadian system. If we know that, then we need to actually try and figure out or develop a plan where we're actually directing that money. And vacant home tax, maybe that's not the best way, but that's the best way the municipality has to try and deter the money from coming into certain segments of the market and going through other segments of the market. I think what we're trying to figure out is how to funnel the money. but We haven't quite figured out the best way to do that yet. Well, the city will be happy to take the money, I'm sure. But uh, in, in this market in Vancouver, I fear that that horse has left the barn. If we start looking at, uh, uh, and it's not too late to ever start anything, but we have so much money invested into this market that hasn't been taxed or hasn't been adequately, um, we haven't seen enough money in return for, for what they're getting. 
because there's so much of it that's already gone on. I'm not really clear what the answer is. Is anything is the same struggles that we're having here happening in Toronto, which is an equally hot market? I mean, that's that's the interesting part is we're looking to see, you know, is it the same? And yes, I mean, there are very anecdotal, very, um, you know, man on the street, realtors that know the industry. And they say that, you know, there's certain buildings within the downtown core of Toronto and 50 to 75 percent of them are, are investments, with a portion of that being foreign buyers. So you look at that and you think, you know, 50 percent of this, of this condominium, you know, with 65 floors and, you know, 100 units per floor, if there's that many units, 50% of them that are foreign buyers, how many of those are actually going to get that tax? Mm -hmm. I think the problem I have is that foreign buyers, you know, they're not, as you said, they're not necessarily buying um, to to make an investment. They don't want to buy a condo to put a renter in there. They don't want to buy a condo for the appreciation value. A lot of these foreign buyers are coming in and parking their money because they just need something safe away from their government and their taxation authorities so they can get their money out of their, their country and into another country that appears safe. Anything taxed may deter and may not. If if you've got uh, a foreign national that's in a country where you know they don't want to keep their children and keep their money, and um, we've seen this in Vancouver, they're going to take their wife or their husband and take their children and park them in a very expensive home in Vancouver. That's not a foreign foreign property. They're not going to get taxed, and yet they still drive the prices up. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a really touchy subject. It's and you're right. It really has to boil down to that that thesis of. What are we actually trying to do with this tax? Are we trying to deter people from having vacant homes? And how is that going to impact, say, Canadian residents who get a temporary posting in in Britain for their job? Now they're going to be taxed? How is this going to actually be applied? I got a, a quick question for you, only 10 seconds to answer, which isn't fair. But do you think with this intervention that we saw last week that it might just slow things a little bit? Oh, you know what? I think people are going to, if they're pushed to buy right now, I think they're going to be running in. And I think if you slow the market, all the domestic buyers, the people that have been sitting on the edge and pushed out are going to rush in. So I think there's going to be some heat in this market for some time still. Appreciate your time. I hope we can get you back again. Thank you, Ian. Romana King, Senior Editor and Columnist at Money Sense. My name is Ian Power for John Meyer and our producer, Mike Given. This is Vancouver Real Estate Today. Hang on. Coming up next, Charmaine De Silva and CKNW Weekend. News Talk 980 CKNW.